Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book that takes a deeper look at some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. This week's guest is Peter Alleggi, professor of history at Michigan State University. We're discussing the book of essays that he edited, along with sociologist Chris Bolzmann, titled Africa's World Cup, Critical Reflections on Play, Patriotism, Spectatorship, and Space, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2013. This book features 20 different essays by scholars, journalists, and bloggers from Africa, Europe, and North and South America. The pieces cover a wide range of topics, from the architecture of the venues to the sounds of the vuvuzela. And this is not your typical collection of dry academic essays. As Peter explains in the interview, he and Chris sought to put together a book that presented the individual experiences of a number of experts, one that would give people new perspectives on the World Cup tournament, and one that the fan would enjoy reading. Peter himself is a well-known scholar of soccer in Africa. He has edited other essay collections, published academic articles, and given interviews for news and sports media. He was a Fulbright Scholar in South Africa in 2010, and his book published that year, African Soccerscapes, is now the standard text on soccer on the continent. It was a pleasure to visit with Peter and to talk about the World Cup I hope you enjoy our interview. Peter, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thanks, Bruce. A pleasure to be on the show. So we usually start with introductions, and I'll ask you to begin by saying a few words about yourself, and and specifically what led you to the study of soccer in Africa. Yeah, I'm a professor of African history at uh, Michigan State, but I was born and grew up in Rome, Italy. And I like to think of myself as uh, having been born with the football or or soccer virus, but it's not been terribly adverse to my health. You know, we grew up uh, playing in the streets and parks and playing in formal clubs and going to Serie A matches. And I had the luxury of going to Italian national team games in the mid to late 70s. And I started to see how soccer was not just a sport, but really was a social experience with all sorts of implications. And the fact that I was from Rome, I think, connects also to the fact that it was the ancient Romans who came up with the ideology of bread and circus, the first sort of politicization of sports, right, of building these uh, huge arenas, uh, Circus Maximus, 300,000 seats, uh, the uh, Colosseum, about uh, 50,000 seats, Uh, where the populace could be entertained so that perhaps a revolution or or rebellion could be staved off. And and I think I was aware of these 
uh, connections, though I may not have known it at the time, uh, as I played football and, and watched football. And so that uh, has always been part of who I am. And over the years, I've been able and very, very lucky to combine my personal passion for sports. I also play soccer and, and uh, some other sports still today uh, with my professional inclination, which is that of, of the historian, uh, part humanist and part social scientist. And uh, I got engaged uh, with South African matters in the mid-80s when the divestment campaigns were exploding all over the United States. I had moved to the U.S., uh, at that time with my mother and on the campus where we were uh, the students were extremely active and I got a political education from uh, the undergraduates there uh, in New Haven, Connecticut and um, you know I, I started getting involved in the way that the teenager does quite uh, in a limited way in a superficial way in South African uh, anti-apartheid activities and I took that interest to university and um, eventually I went to South Africa to work as a physical education coach in a black school outside of Cape Town. And it was there that it occurred to me how important soccer specifically was to black communities. And if that was the case in the early 1990s, before the first democratic elections, I thought, well, this must certainly have been the case in the battle days of segregation and apartheid. And so I started to do some preliminary research. And lo and behold, I discovered that there was uh, no academic history of the game uh, in South Africa. And I thought this was a cultural crime against uh, South Africa. And I thought maybe when I go to graduate school, I can convince my supervisor that this might be a good dissertation topic. And this was the seed that uh, was planted at the time. And eventually it became my first book, uh, first a doctoral dissertation, actually, and then a book uh, on um, uh, soccer and society in, in black South Africa. So I'll ask Peter, since you've been uh, steeped in, in European football, what is it about uh, African football, uh, distinct from European football, that, that you find particularly compelling? Well, if we're talking about the contemporary game, one of the nice things about African football is the accessibility of players, of coaches, uh, of club officials, uh, compared to European ones, we're much more similar to North American uh, major league uh, sports people. And that is, you know, that, that they're kind of canned. Uh, they tend to be difficult to get access to, just a plain interview, just to, you know, have a conversation with. Uh, in uh, South Africa and in other African countries, I, I found um, the whole soccer uh, environment and movement, even at the professional level, to be much more down to earth. It's very easy to just walk up to somebody and ha strike up a, a conversation or sit down and have a beer, perhaps. Um, and I, I really enjoy that because it starts to break down those barriers between the performers and the audience, if you will. Uh, and also, I think in, in, in the African context, it makes the game more real. Um, I think we've lost that in major league sports in North America and Europe. You know, these players have become brands. Everything is so hyper-commercialized. The prices have, have skyrocketed. It, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to relate to baseball stars or even soccer stars in some countries in Europe, and, and I don't find that's the case in Africa. So let me jump on uh, what you had said earlier about uh, uh, connecting connecting your Roman roots to your interest in, in sports. Um, is African soccer, is it another variant of bread and circuses, or is it, or is it something different? Well, that's a really good question. 
In some ways, it is uh, the same thing because politicians, as I've written about all over the African continent, you know, have latched on, particularly, of course, after independence, so which for most countries in Africa came in the early 1960s, on this idea that you could create a national culture through a national soccer team. This in countries that had just been born and were artificially created in the 1880s and, and the succeeding years by European powers. You know, they, the Europeans brought together people who spoke different languages, had different histories and identities into newly created colonies. And so uh, politicians who were sympathetic to the United States during the Cold War, as well as those who were more sympathetic to the Soviet Union and those who chose a third way, they all latched on to soccer, it seems, as a way to articulate a new national identity. And in the process of doing that, I think there was very much a bread and circus kind of idea. Feed the people uh, something that they enjoy, that they value, that they practice, uh, whether they're in the urban areas or the rural areas, whether they're in the north or the south of a particular country, regardless of religion or class or even gender, by the way. Uh, and um, this will, you know, uh, help politically to ensure some stability. Uh, this worked for quite some time. I think in the 60s and 70s, African nations uh, were really on the up and up in, in many different ways, including in sports. But then as structural adjustment was imposed by the World Bank and the IMF, beginning really in the 1980s, uh, and government was forced to disinvest from sports in schools and elsewhere, you see a kind of collapse of this bread and circus um, influence in the African game. And what you start to see is something that had been going on a little bit earlier, but, but really takes off in the 80s, and that is the entrance of private money uh, into the game. And then it doesn't become really about bread and circus. It's about self-aggrandizement and self-empowerment and enrichment by certain individuals. And again, in that respect, Africa is not terribly different from what we've seen in Europe uh, and North America, as well as Latin America. But of course, there are particular local trends and flavors that, that emerge as well in the process. So, Peter, not only do you write academic books and articles about African soccer, you, you also contribute to blogs, uh, you have a podcast, you, you've been interviewed for various media outlets. So when you're speaking to the, to the broader public, uh, when, you're, when you're doing a media interview, what are the misconceptions about soccer in Africa that, that you run into and that you try to dispel? Uh, there are quite a few, actually. Uh, one common misconception is that you know all African players are like Didier Drogba mm -hmm. uh, or uh, Michael Essien or you know insert your favorite African player Yaya Toure, right? And and in this respect, I try to parallel the reality of African soccer players to that perhaps of college basketball players vis-a-vis -vis NBA players in the United States. Now, I don't have the statistics at my fingertips, but some, somewhere along the line of one NCAA player out of you know, 10,000 uh, makes it to the NBA. And that's very much the situation with African football as well, right? We have uh, more than 1,200 African players playing in Europe, but people don't realize that very few of that, of that large number actually play in the top five leagues and in the top clubs in Europe. The vast majority play in more marginal clubs and, very importantly, in more marginal leagues, uh, 
So, for example, if you go to Romania, you'd be struck by the number of African players who are playing there. Or, you know, other countries in Eastern Europe or even in Cyprus or Malta, right? And so African players uh, are actually bankrolling a lot of the lower-tier leagues and clubs in Europe, they provide, yet again, as they have done in world history, Africans have done, provide cheap labor uh, for these enterprises uh, overseas. So that's one misconception. Um, perhaps the other uh, misconception is that, you know, Africa is going to win the world, an African nation is going to win the World Cup sometime soon. I think Pelé predicted that uh, several years ago. And, and Pelé tends to put his foot in his mouth a lot when he talks about <laughs> soccer. Uh, he was much better on the field than he is as a, as a commentator, I'm afraid. And, uh, you know, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, frankly. As much as I would love to see it, I don't see Ivory Coast or Ghana, who are some of the best teams on the continent right now, right, winning soccer's ultimate prize. And, you know, it's now been half a century uh, since uh, these nations uh, have been independent, and there hasn't been a huge international victory in senior soccer, meaning outside of the youth competitions. Uh, so those are two of the misconceptions that, that, that I try to address. Uh, but most of all, I, w I want to bring forward the idea that Africans are f full agents of their own destiny in the game, right? That they're not passive victims of the way global capitalist soccer works, that there are African coaches, there are African middlemen, there are African players who, who try to influence uh, their own lives and do so in, in interesting ways, sometimes for good, sometimes for uh, not so good. So uh, I think treating Africans as full human beings who, can, who um, are capable of making the right decisions and being successful, but also sometimes... Uh, uh, are not able to do so. And I think that's missing in a lot of reporting on, on Africa and a lot of what people understand African sports and society to be. So, Peter, today we're talking about uh, your, your volume of essays, Africa's World Cup, which uh, you edited along with sociologist Chris Boltzmann. And, uh, and this is a book that's, uh, I would say, it's difficult to categorize. There are scholarly essays with plenty of research and theory, and then there are personal memoirs and journalistic pieces. So I'll ask, what were you and Chris aiming to do with the book? Well, we had um, met during the World Cup in South Africa in 2010. And it was right before the final match, uh, incidentally. I, I was a Fulbright scholar teaching at the University of KwaZulu-Natal at the time. And we were so excited about, about what we were seeing in the country, this sort of newfound unity and solidarity among South Africans of various different backgrounds, and so thrilled that many, many people had come from overseas to South Africa to experience the tournament that we thought, well, you know, we've been working on these topics for some time. Um, I was working from a historical perspective, Chris from a sociological one. Why don't we combine our strengths and... Uh, invite contributors to reflect on their experience in South Africa uh, or perhaps their experiences elsewhere uh, of the tournament. And we started contacting people literally the week after the tournament ended. We contacted uh, people who we knew from our uh, academic uh, networks. 
we contacted journalists, we contacted bloggers and, and others. And our idea was, let's try and put together a volume that doesn't just appeal to the specialist, if at all possible. Let's try, in other words, and write a book that people will read. <laughs> and this is very what a, difficult. What an idea. <laughs> what an idea, right? Uh, yeah, quite radical. And um, the way we were going to do this was by, number one, trying to reach out to people who haven't necessarily gotten a lot of exposure uh, in uh, the publishing world. So staying away maybe from some of the heavy hitters who have written a lot about, about football and society in particular. Uh, but also trying to get people to write in the first person. So the writing style was going to be uh, different from your typical uh, academic book. Certainly in history and sociology, we don't encourage uh, a lot of our authors to write in the first person. And also, you know, we, we asked them to really uh, unshackle themselves from their kind of professional uh, voice. You know, talk about the game in a more emotional kind of way. Um, talk about what, what really transformed you uh, in South Africa in 2010. Was it something that you saw, somebody that you met, uh, uh, a visit to a particular museum, for instance, or a sound that you can't get out of your ears, or, or the taste of food that you hadn't tasted before? Something that would also connect with perhaps uh, readers' curiosities and interests. And, uh, and that's what we set out to do. And we had quite an ambitious plan, and we hope to turn the uh, book uh, into a publishable manuscript quite quickly. Uh, but as all edited volumes uh, uh, seem to demonstrate, that's virtually impossible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's turn to the book, Peter. And, uh, and I want to start with a statement that you and Chris make in your introduction. Uh, you call, and this is right on page two, you call the 2010 World Cup, quote, a remarkable month in the modern history of Africa and in the history of global soccer. So, so that's a pretty big statement. And uh, can you can you unpack that for us? Why is that event so significant in the in not only in the history of soccer but in the history of Africa? In terms of the history of soccer, the World Cup had never been held in Africa. So, you know, FIFA likes to sell itself as uh, a global institution political as much as cultural. And how can you be truly global if you've excluded the African continent for so long, right? So if you look at some of the FIFA publications, uh, very glossy, very professional, uh, quite graphically attractive, they often have depictions of African boys and girls, men and women, playing, participating in football matches. It's Africa has served the purpose of enabling FIFA to sell itself as, as global, but the World Cup had never been held in Africa. So this was a statement both by FIFA, particularly Sepp Blatter, who was a strong advocate of uh, having an African nation like South Africa host the World Cup, uh, but also um, Africans themselves, you know, of belonging to the world community of football. And, and they've globalized the game further by including uh, Africa. So I think that's, that's important in this particular phase of the history of soccer. Asia was only uh, able to host the World Cup for the first time in 2002. So, you know, it, it, the game really is globalizing, and that's why we get Russia in 2018 as World Cup host and um, Qatar in 2022. It's sort of the final frontier 
well, maybe China uh, or India will be the, the absolute final frontier. But you see the trend here. And so Africa is a big player in these global processes. In terms of the, the history of Africa, you know, if you look at what South Africa was trying to achieve by hosting the World Cup, uh, this was an exercise in, in marketing brand South Africa to the world of telling people that, you know, South Africa, like other African nations, cannot be reduced, right, to a, a, a country of of crime and violence and corruption and death and destruction and disease, all these negative images and stereotypes that are often associated with Africa and Africans. And, and I think, um, you know, because the hosting was successful by and large, uh, some of these negative uh, images were in fact challenged. And the other thing it has to do with African nations like South Africa putting forward a kind of national political project to their own people. Right. Uh, that that so often one gets lost in the local struggles, the micro struggles uh, that happen all around the continent. And here it was an example of a country being able to unite behind uh, a particular sport that's loved by tens of millions of people in South Africa and hundreds of millions across the continent. And um, I think I think those are some of the reasons why we made that quite assertive statement uh, in the in the introduction. So there are a number of themes and subjects that are discussed in in several essays throughout the book, and I want to ask first about these these topics that that you see throughout the volume. And uh, the first thing I want to ask about, and this is something that was mentioned in I think every essay in the book, and it is proudly displayed in the cover photograph is the Vuvuzela. So can you tell us about the, the meanings of the Vuvuzela? Well, I'll try. I, I, but I will preface my remarks by saying that I detest the Vuvuzela. <laughs> and I was chided by all my South African friends for, making, uh, for taking such a stance. Right? I, I think it completely transforms the soundscape of the football match, which to me is one of the best parts of the stadium experience, and even to some extent, you know, the televisual experience. You can't hear the chants, you can't hear the songs, you can't hear each other speak, you can't hear the ball being kicked, you can't hear the referee's whistle, and on and on and on. And by the way, the Vuvuzelas have diminished um, in South African stadiums uh, since the World Cup. Thankfully, okay. So, having having gotten my prejudice and bias out of the way, uh, the vuvuzela is important because you know, as many of the authors in the book point out, the World Cup was really a FIFA event that was being held in South Africa. So, how did South Africans? Uh, put their stamp on the tournament. Well, one way uh, that everybody saw and unfortunately heard was through this three-foot plastic horn called the Vuvuzela. And, you know, it was a way in, in some respects of the uh, sort of cheeky South African to raise um, his or her middle finger uh, to uh, FIFA and the corporate sponsors who absolutely micromanaged every aspect of the event. And FIFA intelligently, I think, from their point of view, uh, went along with it, right, and, and said, okay, let this, this uh, plastic horn is going to be the symbol of Africanness. Uh, and, and they had all sorts of, you know, very funny explanations of uh, why the Vuvuzela was such a great symbol of, of a African culture. 
Um, but um, yeah, that's 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 uh, I think uh, uh, an important part of it. It was the way in which that the African population, both in South Africa and and uh, increasingly also from outside South Africa, decided that they were going to be uh, playing a part in this tournament by blowing this infernal horn, you know, which uh, reaches what 110, 115 decibels. So. Um, now, it is true that African cultures, as Solomon Waliaula points out uh, in his own essay in the book, uh, sometimes have, you know, uh, horn blowing as, as part of their ritual culture. Uh, he talks about particularly the, the Eastern African context and looks at uh, two initiations um, in Uganda and Kenya where horn blowing uh, plays a central role. And so, you know, without making too much of it, it's quite a speculative argument. The point is that it is true that to some extent horn blowing is part of uh, certain African uh, cultures. Uh, but also it gets it got reified during the World Cup. If you The essay by Jennifer Doyle, which is uh, one of my favorites in the whole collection, you know, talks about World Cup noise. The, the, the theme songs from ESPN by the, the Utah choir presenting itself as an African choir. They were the ones, I think, who did the Lion's King, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, the, the, the Vuvuzela and also uh, Canaan's um, uh, Coca-Cola, you know, wave that uh, wave and flag hymn that we heard everywhere in South Africa. Uh, R. Kelly's song, uh, Shakira's plagiarized song from the Cameroonian uh, a band of the 80s, um, you know, that, that, that the Vuvuzela was part of the soundscape of the World Cup, and it, in many ways it's one of the lasting symbols of the African character of the tournament. So you mentioned the micromanaging by, by FIFA of the, of the tournament, and uh, it's interesting throughout the book, there are, there, there's a great deal of criticism for, of FIFA and its organization of the tournament, but there is a variety of opinion throughout the essays. And even in the, the last chapter of the book, which is a, a roundtable discussion of South African academics and journalists that you led, um, it was notable when you asked them what did they think of FIFA. There was disagreement among the panelists as to how to, how to judge FIFA. Uh, so I'll ask you, what were some of the criticisms that your contributors made of, of FIFA's role in organizing the World Cup? But uh, what did people give FIFA credit for? Yeah, I mean, I think the academic sensibility that we brought to the volume encouraged us to you know, deal with our own preconceptions and, and perhaps uh, positions vis-a-vis FIFA and allow the contributors to speak for themselves and, and not influence uh, their particular uh, take on this on this question. Um, my view of FIFA is considerably more critical than many of the contributors in the volume, but I think we want to encourage dialogue and debate and we want to raise questions. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that that you uh, saw that in the book, I think, is, is one of the greatest compliments uh, that you could make um, from my perspective. Uh, most people, look, in terms of the negatives, they were pretty clear that the economics were, were central to this. Uh, in other words, the fact that FIFA earned over $3 billion uh, of tax-free revenue from the tournament and that the local organizing committee earned somewhere between $70 million and $100 million, depending on whose numbers you take into account, seemed like a very inequitable kind of arrangement, particularly given the fact that South Africa, uh, the government, uh, spent over $7 billion, more or less, uh, on hosting the tournament. 
right? Uh, spending for stadiums and for related infrastructure. Um, yeah, so if you look at the stadiums themselves, people criticize, authors in the book criticize the fact that FIFA is so focused on delivering these high-class, high-modernist, technologically advanced stadiums uh, that maybe it doesn't take long-term sustainability of these facilities into account. What they're interested in is presenting the best possible and most profitable uh, tournament to the world. And the stadiums is, is what most people on television are ever going to see of the host nation. And so you have a situation, as authors in the book point out, of Cape Town, right, which has a kind of Giorgio Armani-esque stadium uh, for the World Cup, I think the capacity was about 68,000. It's uh, since been reduced. And the local teams draw just a few thousand to their home games, and they can't afford to even rent the facility, right? Um, nine of the ten stadiums, uh, as is pointed out in the book, uh, that were either built for the World Cup in 2010 or renovated for the World Cup in 2010 are not even used regularly for uh, South African league matches, and, you know, this is deeply, deeply problematic. And South Africans are not alone in criticizing FIFA for this. We saw this at the Confederations Cup in Brazil uh, just a couple of months ago when huge, massive street protests erupted, right, in coincidence with that tournament, uh, with Brazilians uh, carrying huge banners in the streets uh, of uh, their cities uh, stating things like FIFA go home. Right? How can our hospitals be falling to pieces and our public education system in, in, in complete crisis when you're spending $700 million in Brazil's case to build a stadium in Brasilia where the local team attracts a crowd of 1,000 per game? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen to the stadium? So that's, those are some of the biggest criticisms that people had. But as you point out, there were also uh, some compliments that authors paid to FIFA. Right. I think FIFA's confidence in South Africa that they would host a uh, great tournament uh, was very important to South Africans because there were lots of naysayers in the build up to the tournament. British tabloids, of course, uh, uh, led the pack. You know, they were selling uh, advertisements uh, in some British tabloids for uh, bulletproof vests that British tourists uh, should uh, bring with them to South Africa because of the high crime. Uh, there were even some that uh, were selling particular self-defense uh, weapons and, and, and other things that they should bring to South Africa. I mean, really ludicrous stuff. Franz Beckenbauer was saying, you know, as late as 2006, that the World Cup should be taken away from South Africa. So I think South Africans responded very positively to the confidence that FIFA expressed uh, in, in them as a host nation. And uh, in addition to that, I think uh, many authors point out how FIFA really cooperated um, efficiently with the local organizing committee. Uh, they worked together on a whole number of issues related to uh, the stadiums, to security, to transport, uh, and public safety, and so on. And um, I think South Africans recognized that they needed some assistance from an organization that has a lot of experience in running uh, these global mega events. And, uh, you know, credit to the South Africans that uh, they decided to work with FIFA closely uh, on this front. So one of the interesting tensions I noticed, Peter, in a couple of the essays is uh, people writing, uh, you know, people who were critical of their own nation's politics, elements of their own nation's culture, and yet when they came to South Africa, they were supporting their national team in the tournament. And so we see this in, uh, in for instance, in Chris Boltzmann's 
uh, essay. Uh, so Chris grew up in South Africa. He now lives in the UK. And he talks about having been an opponent of apartheid, how he still bristles at the remnants of the apartheid era. And yet when the tournament begins, he was drawn to cheer for the South African national team. We see it in Andrew Guest's essay on being a fan of the U.S. team and mixing with them other American fans in South Africa. So could you talk about this, how this comes out in these different essays, this, uh, uh, this sense of one you know, wanting to maintain this distant, somewhat critical view of, of one's own nation, but yet when the whistle blows, they're, they're waving the flag. Yeah, that's one of the brilliant uh, uh, things about sport, right? The, the, particularly international sport, that uh, it both unites and divides at the same time. I guess that's true of all team sports. And uh, I think it was um, Benedict Anderson who observed uh, at one point that sports makes the magic of nationalism come alive. Uh, perhaps I'm thinking of Eric Hobsbawm here uh, as well. And, you know, when you see your nation represented by 11 players in uniform and you hear your national anthem, uh, you see the flags waving, um, it, it almost uh, automatically triggers your patriotism, if not your nationalism. I mean, I sense this myself uh, you know, having lived in the States now for many years, you know, whenever I go to a, an Italian national team game, I find myself singing the national anthem, something that I never would have dreamed of doing growing up in Italy. Never. Um, but I, I, I just feel that uh, emotional pull. It's almost inexplicable. It's almost irrational. And you almost can't help it. You're surrounded by thousands of people. You're caught up in the moment. Uh, the power of the crowd almost takes over. And I think Chris's essay uh, is really fascinating because the new national anthem in South Africa is the only anthem that I know in the world that's actually two different songs. It's the old apartheid anthem of T-Stem, the old Afrikaner nationalist anthem, combined with the unofficial anthem of the liberation movement, Nkosi Sigeleli Africa, God Bless Africa, right? And it's in multiple languages. I think that might be the only national anthem in the world also that's in, in multiple languages. And it's in two different keys, by the way. So very unique song. Um, and he talks about how he, he, you know, he can't bring himself to sing the old apartheid anthem. Right. And, um, you know, he did it during that opening game of South Africa versus Mexico with 90,000 people in Soccer City, because as, as a South African, you had to, in a sense, you had to sing it. And he also points out that, he, you know, the tension wasn't completely resolved because after the tournament, when he went to a rugby game in uh, the U.K., where South Africa was playing, he couldn't bring himself to sing that anthem once again. And so I think Chris points out that for all the magic of nationalism and patriotism that the game of soccer elicits, it's all very slippery and temporary. And um, it's based almost entirely on sort of inexplicable emotions and ir irrationalities. And Andrew Guest, uh, who, you know, has a fascinating personal history, he was a Peace Corps volunteer in Malawi. He played at the first division level, the highest level of soccer in Malawi when he was there. He also writes about soccer and blogs about it, you know, and, but he's a proud American. 
And, you know, he talks in that essay of wearing the Team USA jacket to the game against England and uh, singing the national anthem and chanting USA, USA. And yet he's deeply embarrassed by the kind of jingoism that he sees among some of the American fans, like that young man that he rode in the uh, bus with on the way back from the game to Johannesburg. And again, you know, he only recognized that once the game was over, after the 90 minutes were over, and it was no longer a crowd of 50,000, but a crowd of 12 or 14 in the bus, he gained that distance again and was almost offended by, by how that man was behaving. And, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting window into how the 90-minute patriotism phenomenon works in different cultures, whether it's South Africa or the United States, and the way in which the World Cup brings it out in, 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 in a kind of raw, unmediated way. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a similar tension I noticed as well in, in just the tournament itself, the World Cup, in that... Uh, you have you have academics, you have journalists. They they're critical of FIFA. They're critical of uh, the illusion of the World Cup. Uh, the phrase of uh, Laurent Dubois that this is this is the largest theater in human history. It's it's bread and circuses. Uh, but in his essay in particular, you get the sense of he is just caught up in the tournament. And and this is the case in um, in multiple other essays of that people take this critical approach, and yet. Once they get to South Africa, once the games begin, once they're mixing with people outside the stadium, they're just caught up in in this euphoric, wonderful atmosphere. Yeah, and this is one of the central contradictions of the World Cup, and one that we should work with, not against. I mean, if we are to document uh, the full spectrum of the experiences that people had, um, we need to account for that, right? And and after all, the World Cup is primarily about what happens on the field, right? So we can't discount that. Um, you know, I think there's a great danger among, you know, and you see this among some really strong lefty academics uh, in particular, of, of seeing all of this World Cup stuff as basically false consciousness among the fans, you know, a very kind of rigid orthodox Marxist interpretation. Um, I, I, I think that's a very narrow perspective, um, you know, if I asked many people when I was in South Africa, I got a chance to give lots of talks. And as you said, I, I was interviewed quite frequently. I launched a book when I was there, etc. cetera, uh, saw uh, nine games all around the country. And, you know, people were comfortable with this contradiction in South Africa. Not everybody, but, but I would say most, that one could be critical, say, of the, you know, perceived waste of money for glossy stadiums that uh, we're not going to be used much in the future, while at the same time uh, relishing this memory of a lifetime of seeing Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and Wayne Rooney and all the other great stars, uh, Andres Iniesta and so on, with their own eyes in their own country, right? That's, in a way, very South African. I mean, I, I've never been to a country where there are so many church-going communists as in South Africa, <laughs> although my own country of Italy comes pretty darn close, <laughs> Uh, at least at least until you know the 90s um and and you ask people how could you be a communist and 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 a, and a devoutly uh, religious person and they look at you like you're from outer space like you know <laughs> uh, why not <laughs> what what could possibly be wrong with that um i think the danger comes though when we get too caught up in the moment and i was at a game this didn't make it into the book but it's an interesting anecdote nevertheless i think 
Sergio Varela Hernandez has a, a really thoughtful chapter on Mexican nationalism and how much of that Mexican nationalism was was really kind of bogus and and constructed by uh, Televisa and uh, and other uh, forces. Uh, and by the way, Mexican Americans played a huge role in you know wearing sombreros and kind of uh, almost caricaturing uh, Mexican nationalism at the World Cup. Well, Sergio and I. Uh, had the distinct privilege of going to see Mexico-France in Pologuane, sort of in the north of the country, close to the border with Zimbabwe. And, uh, you know, here's big, powerful France. They had lost the World Cup final four years earlier to, to my beloved Italy. And um, Mexico ended up winning 2-0. And I, I sat next to Sergio during that whole game. Only twice during the game did he ever sort of really show any expression of joy and unsurprisingly the first time was when Mexico scored the first goal and the second time uh, was at the end of the game when the whistle blew and Mexico won 2-0. The rest of the time he never joined into any of the chanting. Um, He never waved his Mexican flag. In fact, I don't think he even had a Mexican flag. And I said, Sergio, you know, are you not enjoying yourself? It was a bitterly cold evening. And he said, no, 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 I, I, I'm just, I, I'm very afraid of nationalism. I, I'm opposed to nationalism, or words to that effect. And um, I, I thought that was, that was a really uh, profound and, and telling statement about how this particular uh, individual was dealing uh, with, these, with these feelings. Um, yeah, just wanted to share that. Mm-hmm. I want to pick up on what you're saying about church-going communists. And uh, something I noticed in a few of the essays is um, the language of pilgrimage, that in going to South Africa, as they were thinking about the trip, as they were planning it, uh, it took on the the aura of a, of a pilgrimage. And, and knowing that you... Uh, have studied religion in the past. I was wondering if, if uh, you know, getting away from the essays, uh, if you can offer any insight into that in terms of uh, is going to the World Cup a, a sacral experience? It can be. I'll tell you what. Uh, probably one of my only experience of true transcendentalism was at a World Cup game uh, in 1994 when I... Uh, was about uh, five yards from touching the ball that Roberto Baggio put in the back of the net against Spain with about a minute left in a quarterfinal held in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Um, I don't think I've ever felt that way in church, but then again, I stopped going a long time ago. Um, but, you know, writers have often talked about the stadium as a cathedral, as a, as a sacred space. And it is, it is very much, as Victor Turner would say, a kind of liminal space, a, a, a ritual space. Um, and I think for some people who were involved in the anti-apartheid movement who did write about it in the book, there was certainly an element of this kind of uh, pilgrimage to to South Africa for the World Cup. Simona Kindes, uh, um, Simona Kindes in particular referred to this, but also Mark Perryman's beautiful piece, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the pilgrimage to Robben Island, you know, being on the ferry with the two former prisoners, including Sadiq Isaacs, uh, who unfortunately and sadly passed away just recently, uh, who had uh, been incarcerated for being a saboteur and organized the prisoners' uh, football league, and and going to the prison and playing on that prison field and giving the former prisoners that beautiful jersey uh, dedicated to their um, prison football league. I mean, you really... How can you not relate to that in an emotional way, right? Um, and the pilgrimage that he took to the Hector Peterson Museum in Soweto, uh, 
you know, where he had participated in, in demonstrations back in the UK years and years before, but now you're in Soweto, you're at the place where Hector Peterson was gunned down by the apartheid police, and you're seeing uh, the photographs, you're smelling the air, um, you're tasting the food, and uh, it, that seemed to be as meaningful, if not more meaningful, uh, to Mark and his uh, traveling crew than the quite pitiful games that England ended up playing uh, at the World Cup. But, you know, the stadium really is, uh, in many ways, a church. And uh, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, soccer book of all time is Eduardo Galeano's Soccer in Sun and Shadow. And, and when I teach about soccer in my in my courses, uh, I often pull it out as sort of my, my, little, uh, my little soccer Bible, and I'll read a verse from it, if you will. And there's one I, maybe I, I can share with you that speaks exactly to this, the sacral element of the stadium. And it also speaks to what happened when the World Cup ended. Uh, so here's, here's Galeano writing in Soccer in Sun and Shadow. When the game is over, the fan who is not moved from the stands celebrates his victory. What a goal we scored. What a beating we gave them. Or he cries over his defeat. Ah, they swindled us again. Thief of a referee. And then the sun goes down, and so does the fan. Shadows fall over the emptying stadium. On the concrete terracing, a few fleeting bonfires burn while the lights and voices fade. The stadium is left alone, and the fan, too, returns to his solitude, to the I who had been we. The fan goes off, the crowd breaks up and melts away, and Sunday becomes as melancholy as Ash Wednesday after the death of Carnival. I'll ask Peter uh, a question that you asked your panel. Uh, that's, that's the closing chapter of the book. Was this an African World Cup? Mostly no, in the sense that it was played in Africa. Uh, it was organized with the tremendous assistance of a local organizing committee of South Africans. Um, but there were so few African spectators, right? Fewer than 40,000 tickets were sold to Africans from outside of South Africa. And there were so few black South Africans in the stadiums that, you know, aside from the Vuvuzela, there was not much of an African character to the 2010 World Cup. So uh, by and large, I would say this was a FIFA event where South Africa rented itself out uh, for this purpose. Now, this doesn't mean that it was a tremendously meaningful event, uh, but I would say that the World Cup in uh, Russia and the World Cup in Qatar, and who knows where the future ones will be held, will look, particularly from a televisual and media standpoint, a lot like the one we saw in South Africa. You've been listening to an interview with Peter Alegi about his edited volume of essays, Africa's World Cup, Critical Reflections on Play, Patriotism, Spectatorship, and Space, published in 2013 by the University of Michigan Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from religion to Russian studies. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week. <laughs>